This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome, everybody, into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, in case you haven't heard of SaltCityHoops.com. And if you haven't, what are you doing? Check it out, SaltCityHoops.com. Ben Dowsett is my co-host, as always. He's associate editor of Salt City Hoops. We've got a fun show today. Uh, We've got Royce Young from Daily Thunder and, of course, ESPN.com NBA writer. Uh, joining us later on the show, uh, we've got Aaron Hefner, one of our new writers at Salt City Hoops, joining us, talking about what uh, the Jazz can improve on in the offseason. Royce, by the way, of course, will be talking about the big topic today, which is the Ennis Cantor comments. And I know it's been it's been five days since he made those comments, but people have been asking you and I what we think about these comments, what's actually going on in Jazzland. You know, who's right in this situation? Is it Ennis Cantor or the, the other players that are, you know, basically deriding what Ennis said. It's been uh, five days since he said it, but it's been seven since we had a show. So <laughs> No, and, and even more than that, it's it, it still, I think, is really an interesting way to look at the Jazz. I mean, this is really unprecedented for a player to do something like this for any team, leaving for leaving any team and then coming back. You know, there's a standard script here that Ennis didn't stick to, and, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what we learn about the Jazz even in the past and then moving forward because of those comments. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other things we're going to be covering, guys. We're going to talk about can the Jazz make the playoffs next season. Uh, I think it's somewhat realistic. We'll get, we'll dive into that a little bit. We'll talk about some offensive improvements that Rudy Gobert's been making. We'll talk a little bit about Dante Exum's really nice game last night and kind of how he's improved himself over the past couple of weeks, I think you could say, maybe a yeah. month or so. He's st- just the, their baby steps, of course, still started to show a little bit more confidence. That's all coming up as well, but... I I think, as you said, the, the big topic is the uh, the elephant in, or the, the large Turk in the room, and <laughs> that would be Mr. Ennis Cantor. If you'd like, by the way, you can always chime in and tweet us. Let us know what you think about the uh, anything that we talk about on the show today. You can tweet me at Andy B. Larson. You can tweet Ben at Ben underscore Dowsett, or you can always give us a call, 877-353-0700. That's 877 877- Three five three zero seven hundred. All right, let's get into it. So first, l- let's set the stage a little bit. Yep. Let's let's recap in case you haven't heard or in case you want to hear. Let's let's go to the primary source and play Ennis Cantor's comments from Saturday post uh, post shoot around Saturday morning. We already did what you know talk about the jazz and everything, so we're really uh, ready. Yeah, definitely, man. I love it. I mean, that's the team that I never experienced before, and it just I mean, I you know actually. Like playing basketball there, and I'm just you know so comfortable and everything goes in the right place and you know I'm just really happy to be there. I mean, first of all, I mean it's, I mean it's everything that uh, I mean the fans, the coaches, teams, the I mean the atmosphere is amazing. I mean everything uh, just falling in a place that and I never you know uh, felt like that anything before. I mean so it's just so different. You know, I mean, this is the point guard, you know, the, the best in the league. So I never had a really point guard like that. You know, I never had a point guard, but I think he's just, you know, best in the league. So never liked playing basketball before uh, in my mid career. And that's the first time I started like, playing basketball there for my team, for the fans, for 
my teammates, for coaches, everybody. So that's the first time. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it was it wasn't just like a one game or two game frustration. It was a, you know three and a half year frustration. Um, well, I'm happy for uh, both both sides. You know, I think it worked out well for both both sides. And. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely happy that I'm part of the uh, uh, Oklahoma City team like that, a winner team. So I think it's going to be uh, really well in the future. Okay, so just if he had said any one of those things, it would have been shocking, right? Like it would have yeah. been legitimately incredible. But that he said all of them at once is this cumulative effect that just like kept. And I was there. I, you know, that's that's my recording, and just my mouth kept opening wider and wider and wider. Like, what are you doing, Ennis? Like, I had come there just almost to see Ennis again, right? Like, he was such a jovial guy, always nice to me in the locker room. And then he just, like, went deeper and deeper and deeper and ripping the jazz organization, Utah, his his teammates. I mean, let's let's start from the top. The first thing I, thought, I, I think he said that was interesting is, I mean, I actually like playing basketball there. So he had no enjoyment of playing basketball in the first three and a half years of Utah. Why? Like, uh, what? Uh, what's so different about it? I think that's it's pretty clearly, uh, pretty obviously just false. You you can look through if you want. You can go back through game footage with the Jazz, and you can find. I mean, it was a smiley guy. He smiled all the time. There was there were plenty of fun moments. It may not have been perfect, but there were there were plenty of fun moments here. And th- I think it's that's pretty clearly just a bitter person saying saying something almost as a self-defense mechanism for themselves to to try and sort of justify things in their own head if you will maybe to almost justify the things he was about to start saying just after that because i think as i think you're right it kind of got progressively worse from there <laughs> yeah um for him to honestly say that he spent three and a half years with no enjoyment whatsoever like and but then that the large the there was it was an instant change upon going to Oklahoma City he's been there a month but he already realizes that he enjoys basketball there and does so because he's got a, a better point guard who true he does but it's you know it's Russell Westbrook who is one of the most one of the more polarizing players I think you could say in the first place and I, and they don't. They haven't been doing any more winning than the Jazz have been doing since he came over there. Yeah. It. I don't know. To me, that particular part of the statement reeks as kind of just bitterness. Okay. And so, and then I think his next comment, just moving on to, you know, I never had a point guard. I never had an actual point guard like that. So it's not like you know. Obviously, Russ, Russell Westbrook is one of the best point guards in the league. You see Ennis's point there, but he's also just attacking Trey Burke and a little bit of Dante Axum, a lot of like Mo Williams. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like uh, he's attacking his former teammates. This is the first part of the statement in which he's attacking his former teammates. Um, I I would argue that later when he said the only thing he misses is the mountains, that's where you could have thrown in a shout out to the teammates. Exactly. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting. We asked him after the game, whether he had talked to anybody here, you know, talked to any of his former teammates, talked to his coaches, whatever. And he said the only person he had talked to was Alec Burks. Yeah, it sounded to me like he was saying that because Alec is injured and because he wasn't, quote unquote, part of the game, if you will. Yeah, but you can go in and talk yeah, to oh, yeah. these guys at, at, you know, before the game, at practice, whatever. It, it, 
you know, you have time to make that happen if you want. I mean, we've seen like when Al Jefferson came back last exactly. year for the first time. Yeah. You know, uh, there was this back and forth between Al and Ennis. There was Al literally came into the locker room, shook hands, hug everybody. John Lucas the third when he came back this year, the same thing. When Al came back this year, he was I saw him in the halls like six <laughs> different times. He was talking to every usher there. Like yeah. he was I wasn't meaning to say that that was a legitimate excuse for Cantor. I was meaning to say that's the excuse that he was trying okay. to use for why which, he didn't which is of course anybody who knows anything about how that works works understand that that's ridiculous and that if alec burks is really the only person he talked to that's probably for other reasons yeah well and i guess that's interesting too and and david Locke pointed this out like i've never seen them interact ever <laughs> yeah they, they weren't exactly best of friends like, we didn't see. right yeah. and that i mean david Locke is you know he flies with the team he's he's there more often than i do i i i, I that he hasn't seen that either i think indicates that there wasn't really anything there. It was just that Alec happened to not be... He happened to be the only guy he ran into in the hall, maybe. Yeah, I bet you that's probably exactly what happened. <laughs> I, I just wanted to make a real quick note about that those post-game statements, because I was there for those. I was not there for the earlier ones at Shootaround. You were. I, I just thought this was really interesting, and I mentioned it to you as we walked out of the locker room. Ennis gave you a nice long stare down before he started it. He locked eyes with me for like a half second. I don't think he quite recognized who I am, but then he locked eyes with you for literally, I'm not exaggerating, folks, a solid three or four seconds with a, a goofy little grin on his face, almost like, oh, this guy's here. This guy's going to ask me questions I don't want to answer, like something like that, which I, I thought was kind of rich personally. Well, so here's, here's Ennis's problem. Problem with me, it's that I ask him hard questions about like, dude, what's up with the defense? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, I I place it more professionally than that, but you know, it's something like, so on the pick and roll defense, I've been talking to Quinn Snyder, and he says you should do X. You know, what are you going to implement in order to be doing X in order to you know make yourself a better player? And it's almost like he always didn't accept the premise. Like he mm. always didn't feel that 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 his coaches were lying about him more or less that they that they weren't seeing the right things that they were maybe focusing on the negatives too much and so when you asked him about those and then of course he also was an avid reader of everything i mean i promise ennis has read everything you or i or really anybody out there has ever written about his mm -hmm. game um you know the stats on him were pretty negative that's something that we've acknowledged for the last two years and so he he wasn't a big fan of that. As a result, he, he you know he started being really playful with me in the locker room, which was obviously it's like the very best possible way a player can deal with that sort of you know negative press, I guess. Absolutely. But then I, I think he got continually more and more frustrated as maybe the Quinn Snyder thing wasn't the savior for him. Yeah. Um, I think that he was still being held accountable for his defensive play. I, I think honestly, when you look at the whole thing, you look at what's happened, his comments. The, the whole thing with the crowd, the, the, the ears cupped and the essentially playing a wrestling heel as he, as he was in Energy Solutions Arena. I do think you're potentially dealing with somewhat of a, and I don't mean this too harshly, or maybe I do, uh, somewhat of a delusional person as far as himself. Like, which is, you know, and, in a certain sense, it's great. You want NBA players to think I'm the best. Like that's something we love about right. Rudy, right? Rudy Gobert is that he 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 thinks he's the best defender in the league. He wants maybe he is. He wants to be on the court all the time. He he wants to be impacting every play. You want that, but at the same time. When you're a young player who has to improve, you need the ability to be realistic about assessing your strengths and your weaknesses as a player and about improving those. And your comments as far as, 
as that it almost seemed like he he wanted to not accept the premise of the questions you were asking in the first place really makes me I mean if you're a player like him and you can't accept that you have issues defensively that's delusional you need to you need to un- every single person in the world that knows anything about basketball can see that right away from watching you play and if you're so head like headstrong is good but if you're so headstrong that you can't accept the basic criticisms about yourself and through those that better your game i think it's a big problem yeah i mean nba players by by characteristic are are uh, like nearly entirely headstrong maybe yeah. dante exum included uh excluded <laughs> sorry but uh uh, and you know that arrogance again is is kind of almost a good thing, and and I think Enes Kanter has that in, in the same amount that most NBA players have. What I don't think though that he has is the, the kind of a coachability, and, and that's been really frustrating for the Jazz's coaching staff, who has spent a ton of time with him. Um, you know, when you show a player that he's done something wrong in film study, uh, instead of uh, Instead of, you know, a, a, I guess a willingness to improve, Ennis would almost kind of argue. And, take, and that's, take it as a personal slight. Well, and it should be a personal slight, but then you should work to improve to get better and, and you know, and fix that problem rather be, and then think it as that person is attacking you. Exactly. Yeah. And to me, that just doesn't seem like a strength of his. And there's, I think it's, it's, we're starting to see a pattern now. There were some things with his teams in Turkey, thing here now with the Jazz. And I guess we'll see how he goes forward. Players have matured in the past. It's not impossible. These things happen. Maybe, I'm not even going to say that. I was going to say maybe there really were some terrible things behind the scenes that we don't know about. But you know what? What could there have been that we, like, that is that, that warrants this level of, yeah. of, I mean, I've asked some people around the organization, you know, was there an incident? Was there something that happened uh, that that would have led to this level of volatility, you know, Volatility's vitriol? Word, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, vol- yeah, I mean, either one of those V words yeah. works well. Uh, I, I think, and they all said to a man that, that there wasn't, you know, that he they didn't really understand what Ennis was so frustrated by. And, and then you talk to players who have been in multiple organizations you talk to trevor booker you talk to you know even steve novak was yep. upset about ennis Cantor's comments even though he was too a thunder uh you know i i just don't see what he sees and i i don't think a lot of jazz men do i don't think really anybody does in fact since i mentioned trevor booker let's go ahead and play his comments specifically on uh after the game when the jazz beat the thunder Hey, he can say what he want to. We know what we got here. It's a great organization, uh, great team. Uh, we know what we have. Uh, forget what he says. He, he got his stats, but it, as always, he took the L. That's such a huge thing to say. Like, yeah. like that, that is like the, the most shade that has ever been thrown in an NBA quote ever. Like, I, I can't even, uh, uh, can you think of anything more? I want uh, maybe a most shade thrown in NBA quote I mean, not rankings. off the top of my head. I'm sure there would be something <laughs> if we could think of it. But no, that, I mean, that's a huge amount of shade to throw for a guy who, like you, who was on the roster a month and a half ago. Right. And I, I think it rep- – I honestly – this is my true thought. The ma- One of the main questions people have actually asked me since this happened was, do you think it would have been this bad if he hadn't – like, would, do you still think he would have been booed if he hadn't said what he said? And my answer is yes, but not I think not he gets as, a smattering of Not boos. nearly as much, and I think that theme extends to the Jazz players a ton because I think we heard we we heard little snippets from Jazz players about Cantor after the trade, but before this incident, where they were diplomatic, they were they said the standard right. things. They said, "I hope he succeeds in his new location," and it you know good trade for both teams. That 
that that whole thing. By the way, that uh, that last quote there from Trevor was Zone Sports. So thank you guys for that. Um, he was the, the quotes were totally normal. And then this happened, and we're going to play a couple more here in just a second from Gordon Hayward and Trey Burke. And I think that blindsided Jazz players, what he said at that, that shoot-around in the morning. And they had several hours before the game to hear about what he had said and to be informed. I don't think any of them saw it coming. I think I don't actually think that many of them saw him as a negative person in the locker room. I think that he didn't work out as a player. And he, you're right, he wasn't teachable at times. But I think he was a gregarious guy who could be really funny at times and who could be good. And I don't think there was any special hate harbored no. for him until what he, until what he said. I was surprised about what Anna said, but you know it kind of makes sense in the context of trade demands. I was maybe more surprised by how upset the players were, how personally attacked they felt that Ennis said what he said. And they they really did feel like this was someone who was taking their honor away, taking yeah. everything that they were fighting for. Like, it was very, it was very personal. Let's go ahead and play uh, the Gordon Hayward comments just to get an, an idea. Man, I mean, the, the comments that, that a the former player on our team made were what he felt like. And, you know, it's, if he wants to say those things, he can. I think it kind of pissed us all off, honestly. Um, you know, just fuel the fire for us. And uh, we came out and just wanted to make sure we won. The fans were awesome tonight. I think it fueled the fire for them, too. They obviously heard it. Um, and it was just a great win. The former player. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, you won't say his name, which is, you know, like the ultimate disrespect. It's like wither, Wizard of Earthly stuff. Former player yeah. on our team. But, uh, exactly. Uh, I, just like, I, I can't even, I don't know. I, that... That Gordon Hayward, Gordon Hayward doesn't say interesting quotes. I mean, he's he's not like a quotable guy generally. He's uh, you know obviously best player on the team, so he does get interviewed a lot. But I, I don't feel like he's a guy that's usually looking to make a statement no. from his quotes. Almost never. He'll talk. I like talking to him because he'll talk to me about X's and O's stuff. But other than that, no, you're right. He doesn't generally make like big statements. He's not or, a controversial no, guy. No, never at all. Uh, but he, along with the rest of the team, we just heard from Trevor Booker. Uh, it's really these guys were legitimately upset. Like this brought the team together. The the Jazz had lost four games in a row, and we had talked about this on last week's show. Mm-hmm. And they they looked sluggish. They looked hurt. They looked tired. And this brought them together against a Western Conference playoff team fighting for their lives, and, and brought them down from a for, up back. Sorry, from a sixteen point deficit to win the game. Like had Ennis Cantor not said those things, Saturday night is a very very different game. Absolutely. And a different night in general. It has a whole different tone. Uh, And frankly, on the one hand, it was a little bit unfortunate because, honestly, that night should have been about one thing only, and that should have been Hot Rod Hunley, which I think is really unfortunate that 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 jerk kind of upstaged. Hot Rod Hunley, and I, I hope I don't you know, get yelled at for calling him a jerk, but I really think that was kind of a, <laughs> a jerkish thing to say, a whole bunch of jerkish things to do all at once. And then he kind of confirmed it after the game um, with, it, with his post-game comments. Here's one thing that I'm wondering about. The offseason is upcoming, and it's easy to forget that the guy's still a restricted free agent right. as we come into the offseason. What, what kind of money is this guy going to be making? And I think this is something we can ask Royce when he comes on later because he does cover the Thunder. Are the Thunder going to be the ones paying him that money? I think yes. I mean, if there was anything that was clear in, in terms of 
what Ennis Cantor felt about the Jazz, it was maybe even more clear about how he felt about Oklahoma City, which is that he loves it. I mean, he said it was a clean city. He said that, you know, he, he loves playing so with Westbrook. Dirty. Right. I mean, <laughs> but regardless, uh, you know, he loves being in Oklahoma City. And so, yeah, I, I think they see him as, as a natural fit. They like what they, they've done. He's done there. I mean, obviously, the first 2010 games in, in Oklahoma City center history yeah. were and he's had a bunch done by Ennis Cantor. He put up 30 and 16 last night, uh, although albeit in a losing effort. Uh, you, you know, I, I just think that they're the one who pays him whether or not it's a, whether it's a first contract or a match. It's To me, it's a question of who's the second bidder that will bid up Ennis Cantor's deal to from you know six million a year to twelve or something like that. I think twelve is almost like a baseline for him, given that we know this is a summer where people are going to get overpaid. No, I agree, of- but who else wants him on in their team? Yeah, that's a good question. Right? Like, I think all there'd be the- one or two other teams that are interested. Again, you know, we all know about his defensive liabilities at this point, which are are profound, but. It is rare for a big man who can do the sorts of things that he does offensively. My thing with OKC is, isn't it getting a little bit crowded in that front court? With, I mean, I know they don't have to pay Stephen Adams just yet. I think they've got a year or two left of him after right. this year. And they already, but they already extended Nick Collison. And they got Nick Collison extended. They got Serge Ibaka for actually extended. good money, but yeah. so he's like a good deal that they've got for Serge Ibaka and. Kevin Durant's going to be back next year, and quite frankly, some of the best ball the Thunder play is when Scott Brooks is willing to, for once, get a little creative and play Kevin Durant. At the yeah, floor. but they don't want to do that. They'd as, rather as, not. Again, Scott Brooks has shown over it's, and over again. It's true. They'd rather not, but I think when they get into important situations, that gonna, that's going to start happening. And at that point, if you're paying Cantor thirteen to fourteen million dollars a year, how does that how does that work? And how does it work with the fact that he demanded out of Utah because of minutes? That if all of a sudden say they make the playoffs next year, which or say they're you know a major contender next year and they're in the conference semifinals, and Cantor only gets you know thirteen minutes for several games in a row because they, the Thunder are in a bunch of close games and they need to go with guys that can actually defend and or Kevin Durant, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a real possibility, but I think Oklahoma City again really likes what he's been doing yeah. and would not have given up those pieces if they hadn't already decided that they were going to match. Yeah, I think it's uh, almost a foregone conclusion. They do. do I mean, do you almost, if you're another Western Conference team, do you almost maybe try and, and sign him to a larger deal knowing that you think, that, I mean, this is a huge risk and this is, it's almost going over the top for a team to take the, such a risk and and lock up their cap space for three days, which is what you're doing when you make a, when a restricted free agent signs a tender with you, but if you know, if you could force the Thunder to be paying him fifteen, sixteen million a season, that's like way too much, right? Right. But no team is going to really do this. No, right? that no, because then if it just so happens that we're wrong about what the Thunder think about him and they don't decide to match, then you've stuck. Well, and they might like him at the twelve million dollars a year, but not at a fifteen exactly. or sixteen. Exactly. So that's that's a that fairly unrealistic circumstance there. You're you're. Uh, conspiracy theory, I don't think it's going to play out. It didn't work. So, how real quick? We got a couple minutes left here. How have the teams themselves done since this time? I found a, a couple of brief numbers as far as defense goes. It's been a pretty stark difference. Yeah, the Jazz have been the league's best defense since this time by far. Like by uh, a lot. I I I, I want to emphasize that too because. Not only the Jazz playing the league's best defense, but they're playing like the best defense that has ever been played. If you extended that over the course of a full NBA season Mm -hmm. in the last 10 years. Yeah, basically. Basically, I think since NBA.com began tracking, 
defensive rating, which is like 1996, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and even if you go back further with basketball reference and stuff, it's still, I mean, the the Jazz, what they're doing right now defensively is absolutely elite. Yeah. Now, oh, it's yeah. only over 20 games, and teams have had 20-game stretches like this before. But what I'm saying is, even if there's slippage, the Jazz uh, will be a very good defensive team. Absolutely. Now, the Thunder in contrast, have been the 26th best defensive team since this trade. Some mm. of that, of course, does have to be attributed to the fact that they lost Serge Ibaka. About, a lot of it. About, a lot of it does. Um, if you look at Cantor's numbers, though, the Thunder are 8 points per 100 possessions better defensively when he leaves the floor than when he's on it, which is a similar figure to what he was very often for the Jazz. Now, if you look at, then here's the thing. You think that the offense perhaps makes up for it, but at least as far as comparing just these two teams specifically, it doesn't. The Jazz have been worse offensively than the Thunder. The Thunder have been the fifth best offense in the league since this time, and I think the Jazz are 18th or 17th, something like that Mm -hmm. in that time. But as far as net, per possession rating, Jazz have been the league's fourth best team. Oklahoma City's barely in the top 10. And... To me, that means something. Yeah, no, it. Abs- I, I mean, it absolutely does. I, I think the biggest thing to me, because I, I, I will discount Oklahoma City's performance just because of that Ibaka's gone, but mm-hmm. that the Jazz have improved so much is, is obviously a, a big, big deal. I mean, addition by subtraction is an overused phrase, but it couldn't be more apt. But I, I do want to point out something that I, a tweet... I just got in uh, from Mad Dog 2020, so you know it's good. Oh, yeah. Highest quality of tweets. Y'all just got to get over Ennis. None of y'all wanted him anyway. He's gone, so just be happy, jazz people. Oh, I am happy. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy. You could, If you talk to people that are close to me, I've said that in repeated forms over the last couple After of weeks. After all, you're saying fast, fast seven tonight. I'm, I'm a happy guy. Uh, you <laughs> had a Chipotle burrito earlier today. Everything great. is going well for you. Everything's going well. Oh, and I'm happy specifically about Ennis Cantor not being <laughs> on this basketball team anymore. Not because, not because of the jerkish things and because of anything to do with his personality, but because I feel like the Jazz have a better chance at winning an NBA championships sometime in the next four or five years with him not being on their team. Well, I, I think the last six mu- or six weeks have, have really shown that. Absolutely. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking about Aaron Haf- or with Aaron Hafner about what the Jazz can do to improve this offseason, as well as reading more tweets from you guys. That's coming up next on the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. Andy Larson here, Ben Dowsett on the other side. Just finished up the the Ennis Cantor segment, although we will be talking more about Ennis uh, with Royce Young, NBA.com, or sorry, ESPN.com, NBA writer. That's what I want to say uh, later on in the show. Right now, though, we have Aaron Hefner on the line. Aaron's an, the newest addition to the Salt City Hoops cast of writers. He's Woo! Done, yeah. Um, he's done a, a great article this week on what the Jazz, what each of the Jazz players can improve on during this offseason, kind of as the Jazz try to make that next step up to the playoffs next season. Aaron, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Cool. Well, th- thanks for joining us. First of all, and thanks for being a, a part of Salt City Hoops. It's, it's great to have you aboard. Oh, no, my pleasure. I'm excited. All right. So you wrote an article this weekend, or sorry, this week on. Uh, Called Hags, have a great summer. Like you're 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 signing the yearbook or something. Um, brought me back. Brought me way back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I want to break down what it is that you think each of these jazz players should improve on, and and let's go ahead and start with maybe the guy who needs the most improvement. Um, Dante Exum probably has the most to grow, don't you think? Yeah, you know, in in certain ways, I, I think that's true. You know, certainly not on a defensive end, but I think when we're talking about off-season growth, 
and areas for improvement that they can actually work on in the summer, whether it's alone in a gym or maybe with one or one trainer or a couple other players. I think that I think that is true. Um, he, we notice on the defensive end, he he has a lot of confidence. But once he's on the offensive end, once he has that ball in his hand, it seems like he, he kind of goes into his shell. And so, I, personally, I, when I watch him, I think a, a root cause of that lack of confidence is just uh, muscle and and, and physical um, his physical nature. You know, he's six foot six or six five, depending on what site you look at, but he only weighs five pounds more than Isaiah Thomas, you know, who's five nine. Um, and so even more than weight is just his muscle. I think he needs to get into the weight room, put on some muscle mass. And then I think the next season with that increased muscle, he'll feel more confident in getting into the lanes and making passes and, and being a playmaker that we, you know, we actually saw last night. We got to see a little glimpse of that. That is, that is an actually really good point. That, an incredible stat that, you know, even though he's nine inches taller than Isaiah Thomas, a new Boston Celtics guard, he's only five pounds heavier. That's, that, that's incredible. That's pretty remarkable, honestly. And I, I, along with what you're saying, Aaron, I think that you, you're, you're absolutely right as far as a, a player who could do the most in terms of, of individual tangible skills that we see on the NBA basketball floor. I think this is the guy that needs to, because the raw athletic profile is so there, like so incredibly there. We see it on the defensive end all the time. Another rookie that the Jazz have got this year is Rodney Hood, and he went second uh, in the piece that you wrote, which, by the way, guys, uh, you have to go check out this piece by Aaron. We mentioned it earlier. Definitely, definitely check it out. There, we got a great vine in there from uh, from Quinn Snyder earlier in the year when he was uh, a tad stern, shall we say, with Rodney Hood. And mm-hmm. so, what were the improvements that you think about Hood? So, I think when I watch Rodney Hood, and uh, I think other people think this as well, he, he's really well rounded, especially for a rookie. He just he looks comfortable out there. He doesn't have that lack of confidence that Exum has, but. Uh, I think his playmaking ability is still lacking, and what contributes to that is his his handle. His his dribbling is pretty poor. You know, we always hear uh, Craig Bullerjack say belt high dribble. Well, with Rodney Hood, it's almost like a collar high dribble. It's really high, and it looks uncomfortable. And I think if he could tighten that up, um, it's not that he loses control, but oftentimes to beat his man, he needs someone to scream for him. He needs someone else to intervene. And I think if he could improve his dribble, um, it would relieve a lot of pressure off of Hayward, who right now is having to lug most of the offensive load. Yeah, a high dribble like that can also keep your speed while you're dribbling the ball fairly low, which I think is why he's having some trouble creating individual separation, because like you say, mm-hmm. the dribble's a bit too high. I-, I would agree there, wouldn't you, To the mo- for the most part? Like- yeah, I, you know, out of those two guys, I almost think that, uh, in fact, I do think, I'll go ahead and say it, Dante Exum needs to work on his ball handling and dribbling more than yeah. Rodney Hood does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yeah. you see Rodney Hood making those forays into the paint much more frequently than you do with Dante Exum. And, and you know, as a point guard, I think that that's going to be a much more critical part of Dante Exum's game. You know, even if Rodney Hood is a 3 and D guy moving forward, that's a pretty good outcome for him. 
Uh, Dante Exum needs to be more, especially utilizing his great speed that I don't think Rodney Hood has. Right now, Dante Exum's ball handling is holding back the rest of his athletic profile, you know, along with the strength things that you mentioned. But to me, I would like to see Dante be able to use his left hand more, dribble lower, uh, and really be able to get into the paint and get that by that first step of defenders. Right now, he has the speed. He just doesn't have that initial move to get past anybody. Uh, and, and so I guess that's what I would say is, is to me, ball handling needs to be on, on Dante Axum's list as well as Rodney Hood's. Definitely. Definitely. Now, Aaron, you also went into, you know, it's not only young players. Well, all the Jazz's players are young players pretty much at this point. But you went into it's not only rookies and first and second year players that can, can and need to make improvements over the upcoming summer. You talked a little in your piece also about more established players. In fact, fringe all-star level players at this point in Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors. What did you think about those guys and things they can add to their games over the summer? You know, when it comes to these kinds of guys, anything we say here is going to be getting a bit nitpicky. I mean, these, these guys are, like you said, fringe all-star players. And, and honestly, if Gordon Hayward's not in the, uh, an all-NBA player this year, at least third team, I'd be shocked due to injuries. But, um, you know, there still are some things I think we can pick out that uh, they could improve. For example, in Gordon Hayward, in his game, he has almost entirely avoided posting up. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. got, he's great face-to-face. He's great off the dribble. He's got a spin move and a step back. But when it comes to posting up, he just really doesn't have any kind of, uh, of game. We haven't seen it. So that's one thing. But then another thing I actually invent, you'll probably hate this, but I think he could mimic James Harden a little bit in watching how he holds the ball when he's getting into the lane to draw some fouls. Uh, I think Hayward, although he is 12th in, in free throw attempts per game in the, in, the, in the league, I think he could up that a little bit. He's at six per game, and I think he could get to seven, and and uh, that would be a, a big improvement for the team, you know, add on point eight per, points per game with that. Um, personally, I think that's another thing you could improve. Hey, you know, I, I hate watching James Harden play, but I certainly wouldn't hate having that sort of value added to Gordon Hayward's game. I'd be totally fine with that. And as far as the post goes, I fully agree with you. And what's strange to me about it is two things. First of all, he put on all that strength over the summer, like we saw. He bulked exactly. up a lot. We th- I thought that was actually a signal that we were going to see him in the post a lot more this year. And yeah. some of the moves that we see from him down low, he's got that sort of uh, one-step leaner that he can take in basically any direction where he'll drive on his guy and then jump out in the opposite direction, send almost dirkishly off of one leg, and he'll, he's got that little backwards floater. That move works in the post all the time. Like, that's a really strong post move, potentially. He can, yeah, he can dribble with both hands. He can get to the hoop. I've thought it was a little weird that they haven't tried to do, especially when he's got a slightly smaller guy. I think that's something he could exploit. I'm glad you mentioned this. I want to ask him about this uh, the next time he's in town. I want to ask Quinn Snyder about it, too. How about Rudy Gobert, Aaron? Um, obviously, he's the center, center of attention for the Jazz, not just the center of the Utah Jazz. But, you know, what is it that he needs to work on for next season? Well, I'm so glad uh, he actually talked about it in the post game. I think, actually, I'm not sure if it was one of you who asked him, but he said this summer he wants to go to P3 Sports Science, which is definitely at the top of the list. You know, he's getting pushed off the block, whether it's uh, – uh, mostly on the offensive end, he might get some good position, but the people are just stronger than him and, and heavier than him. They can just move him right off the block. And so if he puts on some, some lower body strength and, and core strength, I think we would see some drastic improvement. We'd be able to see him use his high field goal efficiency around the hoop a lot more if he was able to maintain that position down low. 
Um, but then right along with that, I would hope he's just living right around the rim this summer, uh, practicing layups and hooks and tips, um, because that's going to be uh, a big part of the, the offense, I think, going forward. That's a, a really good poll, first of all, on that P3 quote. That was not Andy or I that asked that question, <laughs> as far as we can tell. We were giving each other as we remember. dumbfounded looks here in the, in the, <laughs> in the studio at the time. Um, so I think we got time for one more here, and I think the most important uh, one here talking about the Jazz going forward as far as, you know, quote-unquote core players would, I think, be Trey Burke. As far as – now, I think we've, we've done a lot of discussion about Trey Burke in recent weeks on this show – what would you identify? I think you could. You say it's the first sentence of your thing under Trey Burke. It would be unfair to put quote unquote everything here, which <laughs> it, it would be a little bit. But at the same time, I think it is fair to say that he's maybe the the non rookie jazz player that has the most individual areas that he could potentially use work in. What would be one or two though that you would highlight as perhaps most vital? Well, I think it really just groups together under the category of shooting. I mean, whether it's a pull-up, a spot-up, a layup, a three-point shot, floaters, everything. I mean, he's you know he's shooting 3% below league average from the three. And in fact, that's only 0.5% better than Ennis Cantor. So I know you guys were dogging on him earlier, but Trey Burke's barely beating him out from three. Um, it, just living and, and shooting the ball over and over and, and hopes that he can he can improve it. Um, you know, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not super optimistic about it, but you never know. Who knows, maybe he can make a, a resurgence here in his, his field goal percentage, but I would just say he needs to focus on shooting. Yeah, I mean, right now, as Ben's piece pointed out, he's the second worst shooter in the league, so maybe he can't get that much worse, let's put it that way. All right, well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it, and we'll be sure to check out your future stuff on Salt City Hoops. All right, thanks for having me, guys. All right, so I want to read a couple. I, I thought that was really great, by the way, Excellent. for Aaron's piece. I, I want to read a couple of tweets that we've gotten in, both about our first segment and second segment today. Um, first of all, from Clint Peterson, um, pointing out that the Jazz have the fourth-best net rating since the All-Star break. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. It's very incredible. Um, that's the 18th best offense, and then just by far and away the league's best defense. Um, Thatcher Olson mentioned, Andy, you just mentioned a small sample size of dominant defense, but if you look at the last 50 games overall, even over that 50-game sample, the Jazz are second. And which much is, of that was with Cantor, who right. was actively bringing the team down while playing like 30 minutes a night defensively. Yeah. I mean, if you look at how the Jazz started the season and even through the All-Star break, they were still 25th, 26th, 27th, you know, in that bottom five of NBA defenses. And then just because they've been so great over the last six weeks, they've been able to pull that up for the last 50 games to be second place. I think that's an incredible stat. It's been an absolutely remarkable turnaround, which, by the way, I think you have to, and we've done it on this show before, I think you have to give credit not only to Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors, but to guys like Elijah Millsap, Dante Exum defensively. Rodney Hood has been great when he's been playing defensively. Even Joe Ingles, even uh, Gordon Hayward. I, I think you have to give credit to all those guys, and Quinn Snyder does regularly. The, mm -hmm. the, the perimeter defense has been essentially the point of attack, if you will, for the defense that allows Rudy and Derek to come in and be so unbelievably effective cleaning up. Absolutely. All right, well, we're actually, we're going to talk about yes. two of those guys next, Rudy Gobert and Don and their development both on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball. That's coming up next on Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett joins me as always. 
so uh, we like we teased and we we want to talk about Dante Exum and Rudy Gobert, uh, especially their game last night. I, I thought they really showed the strides that they've made this season um, in last night's game. So l- let's start first of all with Dante Exum. He had a uh, season high for him, career high for him, and season high for anybody on the Jazz. Twelve assists last night. First of all, I want to point out that 12 assists being a season high for any Jazz player is a ridiculously... Yeah, it is. It's a little bit sad. I mean, John Stockton had 588 12 assist games in his career. Darren Williams had 123 assists in his five and a half year uh, Jazz career. 123 12 assist games, you meant. Yeah, sorry. Whatever I said was wrong. Whatever Ben said is right. (laughs) So, you know, in the last... Okay, so in the last 30 years... 30% 30% of Jazz games has featured someone getting at least 12 assists. And, yet, and this year, it's 1%, and that one was last night, zero before then. Like, that's just, it, it just shows just a little bit about how sad the Jazz's point guard position has been since the Darren Williams trade. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that said, Dante looked as good and as aggressive offensively as we've seen him look last night. By a, I think by a good bit, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I, I don't... I, I didn't count them specifically, but I think if you go back and count the number of times where he had a defender directly in front of him, made a move on said defender and drove towards the paint, at least towards the paint, if not all the way into the paint, I think it was at least 10, right? 10, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah, Maybe I, even more. I, Maybe like, And I don't think there's been any game so far this year where he's done that that many times. No, and I think it was interesting that he revealed after the game that he had had a, qu- a conversation with Quinn Snyder uh-huh. uh, the day before, just talking about how the season had gone, what uh, what it what he needed to do in order to become a more effective NBA player, what he wanted to do in these last eight games, as he still has something to prove. I mean, you were the one who asked that question. What what did you find interesting about that? I really the the, the whole fact that he said that as part of the, especially because actually I had asked Quinn Snyder before the game about Dante Axum and. Kind Kind of about some of these same things, and it ended up just being a good luck and coincidence that Dante ended up having sort uh, somewhat of a breakout game. But when I asked Quinn about it, he didn't say anything about that. Quinn didn't Quinn, and he also didn't post game. He didn't mention anything in terms of that conversation, which to me almost signals that that. And I might be going too far with this, but I, this is just me with my armchair philosophizing here, is that I, I think that maybe Dante is at, still at a mental point where he takes things like that pretty seriously. Like he takes a sit down with the coach to be a, a pretty serious thing, right? You're, you know, you're, ha- you're having a heart to heart. He said, quote, he, the, the part of the quote was we kind of got a better understanding of each other. Right. Whereas I think Quinn almost sees that having been a coach for so long as like a just a day to day thing, right? You sit down with various yeah, you sit players, down and, with all of your guys, exactly. You know? And but that's I almost feel like that's a good thing. I almost feel like, and while at the same time telling us even more about kind of what I think we've already understood to a large degree about Dante, which is that, and which I also wrote in my my post game piece last night, which was about Dante, is that. I think a few people, those who have been really critical of him, and you know, he's been ranked as one of the worst starting point guards in the league, if not the worst, I think, by ESPN. Which I think is totally fair, by the way. Right now, it's fair, absolutely. But I think what some of the analysis misses, or at least maybe at the moment isn't caring to capture just because we're not, they're talking about right now, they're not talking about two years down the line, is that the number of changes this person has had to make in their life, in his life, excuse me, over the last six, eight months is spectacular. 
right? Like, this, this is a guy who lived across the world completely, played at a level that realistically, if you compare Australian high school basketball to the level that most of Dante's peers from the 14 draft were playing at last year, it's like three levels of difference, at least. Uh, Australian high school is below American high school as far as as the level of basketball goes. And so there's that. And then he moved. uh, He's 19 years old. 19, by the way. Uh, Anybody listening who's older than that, think back to when you were 19 years old and what you were doing with your life. I can't share what I was doing with my life when I was 19 (laughs) on the radio right now, for instance. I, I mean, I got a new job like two months ago, and I still feel at times like my life is kind of weird, even because that's even though that's like the only thing that's changed. In Dante that time, Axum's gotten a new job. He's gotten a new everything, every single thing basically, except for the fact that the main thing he does every day is dribble a basketball. Everything about Dante Axum's life has changed, and the I just think that's it's always going to take time for a person to adjust to those circumstances and to adjust to having eleven other grown professionals in the room with him, many of whom have been doing this a lot longer than him and who I think he still feels to some point he needs to defer to. Yeah, I mean, I think those those articles where he's ranked as the worst point guard are absolutely fair. Like, the guy has a 5.9 PER. Yeah. He's shooting, you know, 34% from the field. Like, these are the, and it's not like he's making it up with assists. You know, before last night, his previous ten games, he had gotten ten assists total, yeah. right? Like all of these are are true facts about Dante Exum, and are absolutely fair. And and the guy has not been good offensively thus far at all. Um, but he's showing enough defensively that Quinn Snyder is keeping him on the court. Uh, which, which in itself is really impressive for a rookie. Basically, no rookies are positive on the defensive end, and, and I think Dante Exum is, is think an he, exception I think to he that. Absolutely is. And as far as offense, real quick, we got a tweet in from uh, Clint Peterson. He said, "I'd wager that Dante Exum drove to the paint as many times in last night's game as he had in his six previous combined." He's saying about twelve. Clint thinks it was about twelve. I think that's around what it probably was if you go back and look every time. Depends on how you define a drive, but uh, right and. and I think we should transition here to to Rudy in just a second, but for me, I feel like I'm still completely on on board with Exum. I I don't uh, completely. I think that his ceiling remains possibly, maybe besides Wiggins, possibly still the highest in that 2014 draft. I I think it does too. I I will admit to being a little bit disappointed with the offensive output. Uh, Over the year, but I think this last month or so has been incredibly encouraging, to me at least. He's had like 10 assists over the last 10 games. How has it been encouraging? I'm I'm not necessarily speaking in terms of the actual statistical results. I'm speaking more about the, uh, the something that Quinn Snyder likes to talk about all the time, the process. I think that the process offensively, again, super baby steps, which I think is all you can expect for a 19-year-old who doesn't turn 20 until basically like a couple weeks before the season starts next year. I think the little steps are there. Last night he started taking guys off the dribble a little more. He's been doing that just a bit in games. His passing vision is definitely there. I think there's a lot of positives to look at here, and I'm nowhere close to out on this guy. Yeah, no, I, I'm not out. I'm just saying I, I was, I have been discouraged with Dante's play recently, and yeah. he's been he's been even more scared puppy than usual. But maybe this conversation with Quinn changed things. I hope so. Let's move on to Rudy Gobert because his offensive performance last night was nearly perfect. I mean, he scored 20 points and only. Seven shots, uh, then had six for 11 free throws, and everyone's going to be like, well, yeah, he only made 55% of his free throws or whatever. But still, I mean, that that's a great line. And he also got there 11 times, which makes a difference. Right. Um, 12 rebounds, of course, to go along with it. You know, I, I think his offensive game, Quinn Snyder said that he, he feels that it's underrated. And I would have to agree, just because I think his role game is is 
is pr really pretty good. Um, and maybe that's just because of his length, but and he's able to kind of just put it in over guys. But he's been able to put up points despite not really having any plays called for him and is clearly developing something there on that role game. And honestly, that's more important than a post-up game in today's NBA. Um, a million times more important. And I think when, when we're talking about Rudy times. Gobert's offensive game, we're not actually only talking about the occasions where he himself scores. I think Rudy is an offensive weapon in the same sort of Tyson Chandler mold where when he rolls to the hoop, like you're saying, he's become very good at it. They were taught, In fact, multiple people were talking last night, Quinn and some others were talking about... Uh, how his his timing on rules has gotten a lot better. The spaces that he gets to in the role, he's getting to the right places, essentially. And in doing that, he opens things up for other parts of the Jazz's offense. Because if you're not accounting for him on that role, if you're not bringing maybe an extra guy down to block that potential lob, the Jazz can just throw it up near the hoop all game, and he can go up and dunk the ball because he does that really, really well. So even when he's not scoring, that's an offensive weapon, right? Like, that's a... That's yeah. a legitimate boon that opens things up elsewhere. Do you think that my Tyson Chandler offensive comp for him is reasonable? I, I do. I think that it's I it, it's one of the closest ones for him because I think Tyson's been a guy who's never had much of a post game. He's never been much of a shoot. Now the diff I think one difference is that Tyson managed to get I think close to eighty percent from the free throw line. If it's somewhere around there, high seventies if not. And Rudy's getting close. He's put in a ton of work there. We know he's and he continues to, which is great. But I do think. Overall, that that's one of the better comparisons you can make for Rudy as far as an offensive player goes, at least, is a guy that can suck defenders in on his on when he rolls in the pick and roll and therefore will open things up. And as soon as teams start to expect the pass going out to shooters instead, boom, you hit Rudy for the lob and you keep him honest. I also will add that his passing has been much better than Enes Kanter's. He's got 95 assists for the season compared to Enes Kanter's yeah. measly 26. How is Tyson Chandler as a passer? I'm, tr I'm trying to remember that off the top of my head. At his peak heyday, if you will, or even now, I think Rudy might be a better passer already. I mean, I don't, I don't see Tyson Chandler trying those behind-the-back passes on the break. <laughs> no, I, I don't see those. Um, <laughs> now, those are more just like he probably could have made the same play Rudy could have on a couple yeah. of those occasions without actually <laughs> doing that. But, no, I agree. I, I think he's he could be. Plus, I think that Rudy is actually uh, – Tyson Chandler does the whole tip-out thing a little better as far as offensive rebounding. But I think as far as an offensive rebounder who can then score immediately – after rebounding the ball offensively, I think Rudy might also have a higher ceiling there than Tyson Chandler does. Yeah, I think ceiling-wise, I think it is higher than Tyson Chandler. It's just, I, I think that's, you know, kind of the model, I guess, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side of the break, we do have Royce Young, ESPN.com, NBA writer, joining us, uh, talking about Enes Cantor. He also covers the Thunder for Daily Thunder, uh, as well as what's going on around the league. That's coming up next on Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. I uh, just want to give you a quick score update. Cleveland is up 83-68 on the Miami Heat right now. Uh, just, you know, doing their best to lead the East as, you know, obviously maybe not lead the East, the Atlanta Hawks are still, but uh, the number one seed in the East. But obviously, you know, they're they're currently the favorites to make it out of the Eastern Conference and make it to the finals. So let's put it that way. I think that's fair. Andy Larson here, managing editor of Salt City Hoops, Ben Dowsett on the other side. Uh, we've got Royce Young joining us. Royce is going to give us, uh, first of all, Royce is the ESPN.com NBA writer, uh, as well as the proprietor of DailyThunder.com, the, the ESPN True Hoops site for uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Royce, are you there? 
I am here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You were just in town last week, so I feel like we've talked so recently. Yeah, I feel like we're all best friends. <laughs> I, I made my trip to Salt Lake City. How did you enjoy the city? It was wonderful. I was very thrown off. I've been telling everybody, you know, that was my first time to ever be in Salt Lake. And I was telling people that um, I was really thrown off because I was seeing all these people with tattoos, like like sleeve tattoos, like neck yeah. tattoos, face tattoos. I was like, man, like Salt Lake City, like kind of like Boulder. You know, did, I, did I not know that this was like part of kind of the, the subculture of Salt Lake City? And then I got in a, a cab and it was, I found out that it was the uh, tattoo convention was in town. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So it all made a little bit more sense to me. That, yeah, that does make There is a reason, sense. though, that the tattoo convention is in Salt Lake City. Um, and that's because it is something like the third or fourth most tattooed place in America. Um, just Salt Lake City proper. And then once you go outside of the downtown itself, then it becomes... A lot more uh, probably the monochromatic, least, probably I the guess, least is the way I would put it. place in the country. I think that Utah itself is obviously fairly conservative for the most part, but Salt Lake City is actually pretty like moderately liberal, even sometimes. Mm. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a. I, I really like Salt Lake City personally, but that's threw me I, off. But no, it, it it makes total sense now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get to the subject <laughs> now that we've now that we've talked about our various vacation destinations. Um, Ennis Cantor, of course, is is the largest topic here since we're on a, a, a jazz radio station here. And since the trade, just not getting into any of the, the, the comments, any of the extracurriculars, if you will, just a little, which we may in a little bit. What have you felt about Ennis Cantor on the court and his fit uh, with the team with in the locker room, with the other players, maybe with Scott Brooks as well? Kind of an overall sense. How have you what have you felt so far? I think he's been a tremendous fit in Oklahoma City, um, particularly because of what the Thunder have been going through. You know, if the Thunder didn't have Ennis Cantor right now, they surely would not be in this battle for the eighth seed in the Western Conference. They'd be cooked um, because, you know, Cantor has given them a dimension that they've never had before, which is a back-to-the-basket, low-post kind of score. Um, but he's also found an incredible connection uh, with Russell Westbrook in the pick-and-roll. Those two guys obviously – uh, have developed a quick chemistry together. The Thunder have installed some side screen and roll action that's been really lethal um, because it allows Westbrook to do what he's best at, which is attack downhill and make decisions, uh, maybe kick to a shooter on the wing, which is a lot of times has been Anthony Morrow. Um, and just having Cantor, you know, be able to kind of thrive in the Thunder's, you know, not all that complicated offensive system. A lot of times it's just, um, you know, some players can come in and they can kind of flourish in that because, as you guys probably experienced in Utah, is that Cantor is not a guy that likes to think a whole lot on the basketball court. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that, that he's been able to kind of step in. And, you know, and I know a lot of people are going to use that as a critique on Scott Brooks's uh, offense, but, you know, I, the proof is in the pudding to me is that sometimes simple is better um, based on the personnel that you have. And I think that that's what Brooks has realized with a lot of these players that he has. Not all of them, you know, Russell Westbrook is a highly intelligent offensive player, so is Kevin Durant. But in order to sometimes utilize their best skill sets, that's what you kind of have to do. You kind of have to dumb it down and let them kind of um, wing it, for lack of a better term. So I, I think that Cantor has, has fit really well in that regard. Um, he obviously, I mean, the comments notwithstanding, I mean, he obviously is very excited about Oklahoma City and playing with the Thunder. He, and, and I think the biggest reason for that, honestly, is that he gets to play with Russell Westbrook. You know, I mean, who wouldn't be stoked about that? Um, because Westbrook has made Cantor a better player. I mean, Cantor's obviously settled in in Oklahoma City, but when you're playing with a guy at the caliber of Russell Westbrook that's getting you shots at the rim over and over again, I mean, he's going to make you look good. I mean, that's, that's no big secret there. So I, I think Cantor's really enjoying it for a lot of those reasons. 
let me ask you on the other side of the ball then you know do you think in your in your view has has he been as bad defensively as you were kind of warned about or is that as much as we keep talking about you know, I think that he, yeah, he's he's not been good. There's no there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the numbers back that up. The eye backs that up. Uh, you put him in a pick and roll defensively, and you can expose a lot of his limitations there. And, and I think the the thinking was with the Thunder is that they could hide a lot of that because they could put Serge Ibaka next to him, which those two guys um, could fit well on both ends of the floor. And I you know I I know that Utah kind of tried to do that with Rudy Gobert in some ways. But those two guys really couldn't coexist offensively because what they were trying to do with Cantor was then try to space him out as the stretch option, which is not his strength offensively. In Oklahoma City, that, that's what Serge Ibaka excels at. You know, he's a great spot-up mid-range shooter from 15 to 20 feet, and Ibaka can even go out to the three-point line. He shoots darn near uh, 40%. So you know, I think that those two guys could really work together well um, and Ibaka could kind of hide some of the limitations that Cantor has. Obviously, Ibaka's now been hurt. They've tried to kind of replace that by playing Cantor with Steven Adams a lot. Um, Adams, while is a he's a solid defensive player, but he's still just 22 years old himself, um, and he, he's a developing young player um, on both ends, and he's kind of got his, uh, his issues that he's got to overcome defensively sometimes as well. So, you know, I, I think that one area that kind of surprised me that – with Cantor's defense, you know, everybody advertised him as a really bad defensive player, but I think he's honestly okay defending on the block. I think he can defend a guy one-on-one. I think it's just that he gets lost in space, he doesn't move his feet well, um, and he obviously doesn't communicate very well, which I think that's kind of been the frustration for the Thunders. It seems to me, you know, they've, they've been spoiled in a lot of ways the last few years with one of the best defensive communicators in the league in Kendrick Perkins. For all of the things that Kendrick Perkins did bad, for all of his flaws, one thing he did really well was call out defenses, and I think that they're really missing that because I don't think Canner's very good at it. Yeah, absolutely, and you know I think Ibaka is the uh, kind of that. Lo- and you're right because as far as a skill set goes, having Ibaka who can space the floor, where then you don't have to ask Cantor to do that at all, is kind of a a big thing. It works more for the fit that, of both mm-hmm. of their games. And with having Ibaka out, that's just obviously you can't go there. And Stephen Adams is a nice player, but he's, he's certainly nothing on Serge Ibaka's caliber. And I I, I think it's actually particularly instructive. Uh, kind of what you were saying just at the start about about the how important actually Cantor has been to the Thunder remaining in this in the eight seed currently into this chase. You know, we kind of here in, in Salt Lake and with our various Twitter feeds that we've got. You know, obviously we follow a lot of jazz people and are in those jazz conversations. And a lot of the the conversation there is led by you know how good the Jazz have been defensively since Cantor left, which is absolutely true and may indeed have a large de- amount to do with him. And <laughs> and also that the Thunder have been bad defensively, which may have to do with Cantor also, but also almost certainly has to do with their best defensive player in Serge Ibaka being injured for about half that time. But I I think actually you're right, and I think that might be something that's a little tough for certain Jazz fans to maybe admit at the moment, is that especially after losing Ibaka, they actually have needed Cantor's contributions offensively. Now, we know there have been a number, like last night, for example, where he had the 30 and 16, but was also a minus 7, I think, while on the court. You get that dichotomy with him sometimes, but at the same time, it's not like you can't just throw some other player in there who's going to have the 30 points but then also not get outscored at the same time sometimes you do have to take the good with the bad to a certain point and I think the fact that I think you're absolutely right which again might be unfortunate for some jazz fans is that his he's been really important to them staying in this race right and you know here's the thing is that 
you know, I think a lot of times the narrative gets built around players. And right now with Ennis Cantor, it is, is how bad his defense is. And there's a reason that that narrative has been built, it's because it's true. But at the same time, um, sometimes when a player does something exceptionally well, you can overlook it. I mean, we all praise some, you know, we like to praise defensive specialists throughout the league. Um, for what they do, you know, Tony Allen is a great defender. Heck, Rudy Gobert in Utah right now is a fantastic defensive big man. Um, and, you know, we can look at these guys that are specialists on one end and you kind of ignore the other side sometimes because, you know, maybe they have limitations. Maybe they're not very good offensively, but you can say, but look at what he does for me on this side of the floor. You know, everybody could see it last season with James Harden, who wasn't even trying defensively for yeah. trying out loud. But everybody was like, but look what he does for the team. He's, he's a wonderful player. So, you know, I think that Cantor right now, he's a work in progress. He's 22 years old. Um, obviously, I think it's, it's an area that the Thunder are going to ex- ex- focus on in a lot, of, a lot of ways. He's a huge liability defensively. There's no question. But if you're going to put up 30 and 16, I don't care if you just sit down in the paint for a, whole, <laughs> for a whole defensive possession. I mean, that's valuable stuff, especially for the Thunder right now, um, who really don't have secondary scores to kind of rely upon behind Russell Westbrook. You know, Ibaka would have been that guy, but he's out. Um, Anthony Morrill gave him 32 last night against the Mavericks, but that's not something reliable that you can really count on night to night. So it's it's Russell Westbrook and Ennis Cantor right now really supplying the offense for Thunder. And while Cantor's defense, you know, he's given up almost as much as he scores, um, that's just kind of the way it is right now. And, and I think the Thunder are just going to have to kind of slog through this and then maybe reevaluate uh, what they want to do lineup-wise next season. What were your thoughts in, in Salt Lake about the, the comments uh, Ennis made after shoot-around and then, of course, after the game as well? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was stunned. You know, I, was, I talked to you a little bit after, Andy, and I, I was shocked by it because just, you know, I could tell that Ennis Cantor, you know, in his time in Oklahoma City, he kept kind of repeating himself about how much he liked Oklahoma City and how excited he was to be there and how he's never played with a player like Russell Westbrook. And all that stuff, to me, was fine and good. And nothing all that shocking about it because, I mean, it all seemed true. I mean, the guy was in a new new place. He's playing really well. He's getting big minutes. Um, he's playing alongside one of the NBA's best players. Um, his numbers are good. All that stuff, you know, of course he's having a great time. That doesn't surprise me, um, especially because he wasn't having a very good time in Utah. So, I mean, that, that all seemed fair. But for some of the kind of the cheap shots that he took, I, I just – I didn't expect that. You know, I haven't been around him but for maybe a month and a half or a month or whatever it is. And he just seems like a really nice, happy kid. And but it, obviously he had some kind of experience with the Jazz that he did not enjoy. I think of a lot of it was self-inflicted, quite honestly. And I don't know if that he's going to necessarily sit back and realize that. That you know when he, when he basically admitted that he didn't give his all every night. Then I mean it's like to me it's like what do you expect, man? <laughs> you know, I mean if yeah. you're going to just straight up admit that, um, you know it's not like somebody's going to walk up to you um, and just hand you playing time on a silver platter if you just openly admit that you weren't being a professional. So I you know I think that obviously. The, the marriage there did not go well. And, I, and I'm sure that there's some blood on both hands. Um, you know, maybe Cantor was promised some things that he didn't get uh, from the various coaching staffs. You know, he had to go through the Ty Corbin era, which probably wasn't all that pleasant. Um, but, you know, I, I think that in both sides, sometimes it's just better to break up. And uh, obviously I think Cantor is enjoying himself very much in Oklahoma City, but um, I was a little bit stunned because, you know, the Jazz has always been known – 
as a model organization. It has a great reputation around the league. And uh, obviously, Ennis Cantor, for whatever reason, didn't didn't share that in that kind of experience. Yeah, and you know, Scott Brooks wasn't particularly happy either with his his sort of routine before the game, where he cupped his hands to his ears, did the yeah. did kind of the, the the heel turn, if you will. Scott Brooks, in fact, said that would be addressed. Some of that makes you think every now and then that maybe he doesn't have the right people around him in terms of voices in his ear. Is that is that something that you've had any? Uh, you, like you say, you've only been around him, you know, a month, month and a half type of thing. But ha- have you had any interactions with with his entourage, specifically maybe with his agent Max Ergol, who I don't know how often he's actually in Oklahoma City with Ennis. But is that something you've been able to get a gauge on at all? Because that's another element that's been you know frequently discussed around our circles as well. Yeah, not too much, really. Honestly, at this point, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, I can make some of those. Um, connections in the near future because obviously those things are valuable to have in your pocket but um you know i i think for for me i i think that Cantor. a lot of people kind of do forget uh, they forget a little bit that he is 22 years old he didn't have really a college experience you know i mean he went to kentucky quote unquote um but you know i i think that in a lot of ways uh you know he's kind of been hyped up by his entourage people by his agent he's kind of had it fed into him that he's a great, great Hall of Fame caliber player. And, and who knows? He may very well be. I don't know. And the guy is young and he's got a ton of talent. But um, I think sometimes when you get that type of stuff put into your head and then people are telling you that you're not getting enough playing time, you're not playing the right role, the coach is doing you a disservice, whatever it may be, um, things change for you. And that kind of stuff can kind of get into your head and then all of a sudden you think you want out. Now, you know, I think, I think one thing that Ennis Cantor, I hope that he realizes, um, is that you know he's been playing – exclusively with Russell Westbrook. He hasn't played a single game with Kevin Durant. And so right now, you know, Cantor is Westbrook's number one guy. He's looking for him all the time, trying to find him in pick and rolls. Things are going to change quite a bit next season when Kevin Durant comes back healthy and Serge Ibaka. So, you know, there's a question even if Cantor will remain the starter. You know, they may move to Steven Adams back in the starting five because of his defensive-minded um, presence that he can kind of give you in the paint. So, you know, as happy as Ennis Cantor is right now, and this is all assuming, obviously, that Cantor resigns with the Thunder in the offseason, but I think that'll happen. Um, you know, things might change in terms of perspective for Cantor. He might feel a little bit differently about his role um, once he becomes the, the third or fourth option again. Well, I, and I was going to ask you about what the Thunder's plans were for uh, Cantor this offseason. I mean, it, it, did the comments worry you at all? You know, do they do they give you any pause in terms of giving him that sort of money that he does want? And then, yeah, I mean, if if he doesn't become a starter, if he is kind of the fourth option in in an offense, where does that leave him moving forward? I mean, I, I guess how would you describe the likelihood that he comes back to Oklahoma City? And then, what kind of contract do you think it will have to take in order to bring him back? I mean, I, I think that it's I, – I don't want to say 100%. I think it's 95% that the Thunder re-sign him. I mean, they they did not make this deal um, as as a rental. I mean, that, that's not what they did. You know, that's – they were very interested in Brooke Lopez. They, they Sam Presti has been infatuated for, with Lopez for a number of years. Um, but the biggest reason they didn't want to go that direction is they didn't have the confidence that they'd be able to keep Lopez in the long term because Lopez has a player option this summer and they felt like he might opt out and they might lose him. And so they zeroed in on Cantor, who fit their profile as a young player with talent. Um, he's restricted, so obviously the Thunder have the leverage there. And to me, I mean, I, I don't know that they would necessarily just straight up max on a, a match on a max offer, but to me it wouldn't, sh- it wouldn't shock me if they did, um, because I think the Thunder have every intention to re-sign Ennis Cantor. I think that they're really excited 
about the type of team that they could put together with him um, playing alongside Westbrook and Durant and Ibaka. So, you know, I, I don't know what kind of offer Cantor will get. And quite honestly, I bet you Sam Presti is fist pumping every time somebody tweets about his defense because it probably just helps <laughs> lower, the, the, lower the asking price. You know, it wouldn't shock me if Sam Presti had a couple of fake Twitter accounts out there and he was just tweeting horrible defense <laughs> numbers about Cantor to just try to make sure everybody remembers that while he's putting up 30 and 16. But, oh, yeah, his defense is really bad, guys. Oh, yeah. So you don't want to give him a max. I want to ask you one question about uh, you know what we're going to be talking about next, and that's the likelihood of the Jazz making the playoffs next season. I mean, obviously, you just went to Salt Lake, watched the, watched the Jazz play the Thunder on Saturday. Uh, do you see the Jazz as a potential playoff team next season? Can they change conferences? Because that would be <laughs> step number one. I, I, you um, know, if we both could, that would be great, right? <laughs> that would be really helpful. I think the Thunder would be the five seed right now. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think that the Jazz have a great opportunity to, quite honestly. I mean, I, the, there's no denying what they've done um, since the All-Star break. I mean, they've been, one of the, they've been the best defensive team in the league. And, you know, I think that they've got a lot of young talent that's developing. A lot of it will depend on, you know, young guys like Dante Exum. they do they got to figure out the point guard position. You guys know it well. they got to figure out who's their long-term guy there, who do they want to give the bulk of the minutes to. Can Exum and Burke play together, which I don't really know if that's possible. Um, but, you know, they have a good structure there. They have a good fit. Gobert is, is a monster defensively and can really influence games. Um, they're always good at home. So, you know, I think that I think the Jazz have a good opportunity to, you know, the, the question for me is, is what does the back end of the Western Conference look like? You know, how many wins is it going to take? If it takes 44 wins next season, I think the Jazz got a great shot. Um, I think they could absolutely be in the conversation. But, you know, the Pelicans are on the rise. Um, you know, you've got uh, the, the Kings might be a little bit better next year under George Carl. You don't know. Um, so, you know, some of the teams are starting to kind of fade out. Maybe the Mavericks take another step back. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's always going to take, you know, 48, 49 wins to secure a spot in the Western Conference. And that's a big ask for the, for the Jazz to take that leap. But I, I think that they're going to be in the conversation right up to it. I think that they could absolutely be next year's pelicans it'll be really easy for them though once the thunder trade them kevin durant so that, <laughs> yeah. that won't be much of a That's problem right? right all right uh, well anyway royce we have already kept you much longer than we said we were going to but thank you so much for joining us guys royce young espn.com also dailythunder.com thank you so much royce yeah thanks for having me guys and guys, make sure you do go and follow Roy. I mean, he's one of the he's essentially one of the the, the senior guys over at ESPN as far as the like you he doesn't only write I mean, I think he writes majority Thunder columns, but he doesn't write only about the Thunder. He'll write No, about, definitely not. Yeah, write about a lot of kind of like an, an Ethan Sherwood Strauss, one of those types of guy I mean El Hassan, one of those guys that's really up top of ESPN and has, has done really well and one of my favorite reads as well. So thanks to him for joining us. And I, you know, as he kind of helped us segue into this next subject here, I think he's very right that the the Jazz have a legitimate chance to make the playoffs next year. And I think he's also right that figuring out the point guard situation, not necessarily figuring out, necessarily even just figuring it out, but getting better play right, from that's it the key. is going to be huge. Because, I mean, the point guard position is figured out, right? You're going to give most of the minutes to Dante Exum as he started this year. And, you know, you expect him to continue to grow in terms of minutes played for next season. And then either Trey Burke or some other backup point guard, you know, you could see maybe Raul Neto, maybe we could see the Jazz make a signing there. But, you know, it's a backup point guard spot. It's, yeah. it's not anything that crazy. Uh, but I think the real question is, how do the Jazz perform as a team? And, and when you look at 
the the likelihood that they are a top five defense next season, which, you know, even if they play 10% worse than they have been this season or in the last 20 games defensively since the Anna trade, they're going to be a top five defense next season, which is, is a crazy thing to, that I just said. Like, I, I can't imagine saying that two months ago. It's crazy. It's um, it really is. But I, I think that's the, the likelihood is, is in favor of the Jazz being a top five defensive team. And then offensively right now, despite having quite honestly not a great bundle of offensive talent uh really your only good offensive players are gordon hayward and Derek favors mm-hmm. uh, you still are the 15th team in the league offensively in terms of offensive rating i mean and uh, even 17th since uh, or something like that since Cantor, 17th yeah uh, since the Cantor trade who was another one of your only significantly above average offensive players which again is is mind-boggling to me. So look, if you can be an average team next year offensively, and you know maybe take a step up uh, by uh, through development of Dante Exum, maybe through Rudy Gobert's continued continued development on the offensive end, maybe you sign a guy uh, who can help you be better offensively. I mean, right now the Jazz are playing so many replacement level players offensively with Joe Ingles and Elijah Millsap and and Dante Exum sub replacement mm-hmm. offensively. Trey Burke can't make a shot. You know, you go up and down the roster and you don't have a lot of offensive talent. If the Jazz do add an offensive talent, they'll be much better on that side of the floor or at least a little bit better. Yeah. And I, th- I think the thing is a little bit better almost gets you into that elite conversation in the league. If the defense stays anywhere near as good as it's been, if you have a top 10 offense or roughly a top 10 offense, I don't think they'll have a top 10 offense, but if you look at a roughly average offense, I think yeah, it's fair. Or even, you know, like 12th, 13th, something like that. If you have that, still... but then you also have either the very best defense in the league or like among the three best defenses in the league, that's typically a playoff team. Agreed. And no, it, a the... few spots higher on the offense. And that's typically a title contender, but... which we're not talking about next year right no and i i don't think that the offense will be heck it may not ever be a top 10 offense i i with, with the talent, it's going to be tough to right. build that around Gobert, with the talent what that we the jazz have before. i i don't really ever see them becoming a top 10 offense it's going to mm-hmm. be about being an elite defensive team yeah absolutely now you're right though i think as we've talked about tons previously on the show the emphasis over the summer is going to be adding a little bit more of that offensive talent of course they're going to get alec burks back which isn't offensively is certainly not going to hurt um and, of course, as you were saying, every single major player that's going to be coming back next year in big minutes in the rotation is going to be expected to be better offensively than they were this year. I think the model is something like the Pacers of last season, who yep. were the best defensive team in the league with a 99 defensive rating, but then were 23rd in the league offensively, still put up 56 wins. I think that's basically the model for the Jazz next season. Maybe they're second defensively instead of first. Maybe they're 20th offensively instead of 23rd. But you're that's still you know the Pacers last year were a 56 win team maybe in the Western Conference you you adjust that down to 50 to 52 but still you're looking at a playoff team that season next season if they can do both of those things I mean call me crazy but I I legitimately think there's a chance the Jazz can be at least league average offensively next year if not like a spot or two higher than I know I said call me crazy before that so uh, I'm gonna like I'm gonna call you not crazy but maybe a little bit of a homer bit optimistic perhaps but I I I mean really that you said it yourself they've managed to eke out a 15th place offense this year and there's no way they're going to be playing as many as you said either replacement or sub replacement level players offensively next year there's no way yeah yeah, but what if Gordon Hayward gets hurt for oh, longer? Of course, I if mean, a major uh, injury takes place, then that could derail. And major everything. injuries always take place. But, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they do. 
I mean, every single team in the Western Conference has had a major injury this season, maybe except for Golden State. Yeah, that's a good point. I I, I guess you're right. It might be a little bit too optimistic, but I, I think that if they've been able to do it this year, if we can, and, you know, it's not like they've had great injury luck this year. They've had, it's been at least, I mean, well, in fact, they've had bad, I think they've had slightly below average injury yeah, luck. Yeah, no, right? I, I mean, Alec if you Burks look at games, sure, I, I think... But it's not their best players, you know. It's not no. anything like Oklahoma City losing uh, Kevin Durant and, and Serge Ibaka. It's not any, even. I would say that Wes Matthews is a bigger injury than Alec Burks. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. I'm, just, but I also think if we're talking about only an injury to one of their most impactful offensive players, you hope that's at least somewhat unlikely, right? That you know that Gordon yeah. or Derek is going to get hurt. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I, I think uh, it's something to consider. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to uh, go around the NBA, talk about all the different things that have happened in the league this last week. That's coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the show. We just spent that entire break just arguing about basketball. We love (laughs) it. We love talking about the jazz, the NBA nerding out over the stats and stuff. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett over here. Uh, for what it's worth, we've got some Twitter followers who disagree with me. Um, Thatcher, let's see, what's what's your actual Twitter handle? It's that Cho uh, says, I, ag- I agree with Ben here. Um, Jazz are 15th this year. Why not with player development and offensive chemistry? Can that not go up? I think because of regression to mean. I mean, I, I think basically teams, if you scout the Jazz, if teams are giving 100% effort against the Jazz in kind of these night-after-night playoff contending battles, I think that's a different ballgame than the Jazz have been facing this year. Yeah, and that much, I'm I'm on board with that, but I think that that also possibly is, if not mitigate, if I mean, if not outweighed, at least somewhat mitigated by the fact that the Jazz themselves are also going to become a lot better and more varied to offensively yeah. next year. And you hope add potentially a shooter or potentially another playmaker, you know, above average NBA playmaker as well. Agreed. Let's go to around the NBA though. Let's I just I just wanted to finish that argument. And we can this is one that we can have in future shows as well because there's going to once the season ends it's going to turn to next year a lot so we can definitely right. have these conversations. Yep. So, you know, if you enjoyed that and I don't know if you did, but then tune in next week to yep. the Salt City Hoop show. Mm-hmm. But let's go to LOL Lakers, our favorite segment. Oh, yeah. Can we cue the Yakety Sacks? Thank you. Yakety Sacks. The Lakers are our favorite team in that only when they're terrible. Because, <laughs> in fact, we have a segment dedicated to them because we kind of hate them a little bit. Um, Just a little bit. But <laughs> we like laughing at their failures. And so the first one was was news today from Sean Devaney of the Sporting News that the Lakers want to sign a star point guard. But they want to sign Rajon Rondo instead of Goran Dragic. They have Rajon Rondo at the top of their list, which is it's a little bit unfathomable. That seems par- ridiculously goofy, <laughs> seeing what Rondo's been able to do or really not do this year with uh, the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, he's he's legitimately hurt Dallas on the floor, and like while called it Rondo is a better is is a bigger star than Dragic is. Like I don't honestly know if I agree with that right now. No, in terms of fame, for sure. Like, oh, as far as fame, sure. That's but what as, I'm saying. Oh, I thought you meant like as far as like his like his basketball star. Yeah, no, like his Hollywood star will be bigger than Dragic's, okay. I guess. But no, in terms of actual play on the floor, I think uh, you know Goran's a much better player. The dragon lives on. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I just think that that's funny that the Lakers, even as a terrible team, 
are, are still going for star power instead of what they really need, which is talent. Um, in the standings, are within two wins of Orlando. Remember, that would move them up into the fifth worst team, making Wouldn't it... Wouldn't they have to... If they tied Orlando, they'd flip a coin, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, Jazz fans are familiar with that scenario. Yes. And, and so if that were to happen, then they would be much less likely to keep their pick, which is top five protected this season. Then it would go to Philadelphia, making that team even younger and longer and better uh, while the Lakers stay in... Imagine, imagine Philadelphia getting to pick Carl Towns and Justice Winslow in the same draft. That could really happen. And pairing them with already Joel Embiid, Nerlens Noel, like it, all of the length. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then in the final funniest moment, um, the Lakers beat the Sixers this week by two points by, with a buzzer beating shot by Jordan Clarkson. And their fans were distraught, which is always hilarious to me. <laughs> I, maybe the worst part about Lakers or about the Lakers is Laker fans. And so for them to be unhappy at a Laker win just, just warms my heart. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. All right. That's your LOL Laker segment. Thank you so much. It's almost even getting depressing to do those segments. <laughs> even, even with disliking the team, it's almost getting depressing. No, see, you don't have the hate that I do. It's just oh, you just got to bring the hate hard. Oh, I have some Hashtag hate. hate hard. And, and yeah, anyway. You should have seen me back when the, in those – you didn't know me, but back in those years where they lost those three straight series to the Lakers. I've got some hate. Don't you worry. Dude, no. I like – started fights with laker fans who were significantly bigger than me and like i am a nerd if i get punched i'm done like i i should not be in fights and yeah. laker fans i was like come on bro let's go aaron aaron hefner who was just on earlier when i so last night when that uh the uh the the block by uh who by jack cooley that got called back for the jag was they was called a foul you made a, a guttural noise when that happened which i then tweeted was the <laughs> loudest noise i've ever heard you make on on press row because you're normally the most professional guy on there and aaron responded that he, he once sat in front of you at a game and can't imagine you being the the quiet guy on press row so i was interested by i that. am the quiet guy on press row but it's it's kind of a switch right like it's yeah. either all on and you get the full passion and emotion that is andy larson okay and uh various cursings and uh, you know <laughs> i don't know fingers being frozen it, it just <laughs> let's, number let's, one right number yeah, one number one go team yeah um all right, let's continue. Or you get, <laughs> or you get the the I guess serious analysis that okay. I try to bring to this. Okay. Usually, it's you that's got to tell me to be quieter. I know, row. but I mean that Jack Cooley block I think was maybe the moment this season where expectations and reality were at their widest <laughs> yeah. difference. Yeah, like that was amazing. I had no idea that he could do that. By the way, I passed Jack last night when we were walking to the lot. He was legit pissed that he didn't get credit for that block because <laughs> it was completely clean and he knows it was. Yeah, right. he did admittedly. Then throw the, oh, the player down, onto the ground, just onto the ground. <laughs> yeah, which you know, if Benny Adams is calling that, then maybe it's probably a foul. Yeah, probably. Um, moving on anyway, and around the NBA, Nikola Pekovic had a, an Achilles injury today, or announced that surgery. he would have in yeah. Achilles surgery today, so he'll be out for quite some time. Um, that's uh, just kind of sucks for the Timberwolves, who I, I like Pekovic a lot. I do too, and you know they've been a bundle of fun this year when they've started to get some of their guys back. Wiggins has been great. Rubio is all sorts of fun. Uh, uh, hopefully Pekovic can come back mostly healthy and they can sort of continue that run next year. 
Speaking of injuries, we've got a few guys that may or may not be coming back here in the next little while who could honestly have a fairly large impact both on the playoff race and then on the actual playoffs themselves. Specifically, Paul George with the Pacers. We've seen for a couple weeks now he's been somewhat close to returning. I'm not sure what the word, the most recent word is on that, but I think there's a chance at least that he comes back before the season's done. Indy has to hope in his case that it's not too late because I think they've fallen out of that eight seed by a couple of games. I'm not looking directly at the standings right now, but I think they've fallen out of that eight seed by a couple of games. So they have to kind of hope that if, and you know, if they do fall out, I think it would be basically impossible that they would bring Paul George back at that point. Yeah. They're they're actually, they're three games out right now of the eight seed, which I'm checking right now. So, Mm, they might be a little, they might have waited a little too long, but of course the long term health of a, a superstar like that is far more important. Also, Serge Ibaka, we mentioned him when we were talking to Royce Young earlier. Um, and actually, I, when I was talking to Royce last week when he was here, he thinks that Serge will be back before the playoffs begin. In fact, potentially before the end of the regular season, which would which, be big for them. Oh, it would be huge, especially considering that they have now lost a few, and that eight seed is no longer lo- you know uh, a sure thing for them. No, they're only one and a half up of the Pelicans, and the Pelicans, and, and the Pelicans the have the tiebreaker, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, and then another guy, of course, is Derrick Rose, and you almost don't even want to talk about it because you just almost want to try and let it happen and not like right jinx talking it or anything. about it is jinxing him. Yeah. We've learned that with Derrick Rose by yeah, now. Yeah, I guess we have. So, although anything seems to be jinxing him <laughs> at this point. So, you hope that if he comes back that it's for the, again, that it's at the right, you hope they're not rushing anything just because they know they're going into the playoffs. The long-term health of a guy like this is far more important. But at the same time, you hope that this time he can come back and actually make, you know, stay on the court. Right. And, yeah. A couple other news and notes. Um, Billy Donovan said that, or I don't know if he said, but there were reports that he may want to coach in the NBA next season. Um, remember, he signed that deal with the Orlando Magic to coach them and then backed out at the yeah. last minute, which was which was kind of a traumatic moment for that franchise. Um, and, and we talked about John Calipari maybe wanting to make the leap from college to the NBA last season. It's getting a little bit or crowded in the season. NBA as far as coaches go, though. Like, I feel like, uh, you know, you add two college guys, plus you've got a, a couple of guys that don't currently have jobs that are at least somewhat known commodities in the NBA that could become coaches or guys that we've talked about as potential future NBA co- guys, like guys that are assistants right now, like a, a Tyron Lou or somebody like yeah. that. All of a sudden, we're kind of, there's only 30 jobs that are available, right? Right. Um, that being said, I think, you know, Denver's looking for a coach. I think there are openings for these guys somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sim Boulard was signed by the Kings today. Um, he is d- two notes about him. First of all, he's the first Indian player to play in the NBA. Second, he's also the largest man ever to play in the NBA. Uh, he's 360 pounds. He's seven foot five. That's big. Which is ridiculous. Like, I can't even him playing next to Nerlens Noel during last summer league was was maybe one of my favorite moments. I saw film of him today dunking on a basket and legitimately was asking, "Wait, is that ten? Like, is that <laughs> is that basket ten feet tall?" It, it it was almost like a Rudy type of moment. We've got a caller, Andrew, who's calling into the show. Andrew, what is it that you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, something that Royce Young said. Okay, uh, when he was on earlier. Cool. Um, I kind of wanted to see if you guys agree with me, but I don't like the idea where he said at the beginning of the interview, uh, he said, you know, if he gives us 30 points and 16 rebounds, you know, we don't care about what he does on defense because I, I mean, essentially I know the 30 points is a career high, but essentially wasn't that what he was doing with Utah is just putting up points with no regard for defense. And when he was doing that, Utah's record wasn't good. And now I know Serge Ibaka isn't there, which hurts the Thunder defense, but you know, now the Thunder, I believe, 
dropped out of the playoff spot, the eighth playoff spot. So, I mean, I just, I don't, do you guys agree with that or do you agree more with, with Royce that if he puts up those numbers, he can do what he wants on defense? Um, well, so first, first of all, and thank you uh, very much for the call, Andrew. We appreciate it. Uh, the, first of all, they, the, the Thunder are still in the playoff spot for right now, although it's, it's gotten a lot closer. They're only a game and a half up right now on, on uh, New Orleans, which really kind of actually only counts as a half game because New Orleans owns the tiebreaker, meaning if they tie, New Orleans is going to get the seed. Um, I, if I, I don't want to put words in Royce's mouth, but what I think he was kind of trying to say with that, if I may paraphrase a little bit, is that it's a, it's all an issue of trade-offs, right? We're talking about what a guy can bring and what he detracts. And yes, you're absolutely right. Cantor detracts a lot from the defensive side of the ball for any team he's playing with. But at the same time, he, because he brings so much on the offensive end, if we're talking about Cantor versus you know, Nick Collison or Steven Adams, the next guys down the, the depth chart as far as OKC's bigs go with Serge Ibaka being out. I think that the the question of overall value, Cantor is still higher than those next, especially than a guy like Collison who you would go to because, yes, Nick Collison might do certain things better defensively, but the value that he can bring on offense is so much less. And when you're talking about cumulative value, yes, Cantor's going out and putting up his 30 and 16 and they still lost the game. But maybe if you put Collison in instead of him, Collison puts up five points and four rebounds and they lose the game by 20. Do you, you kind of see what I'm saying there a little? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I guess I would defend Andrew by saying, hey, you know, that was not that was a game where some defense needed to be played. I mean, they they lost 135 to 131. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, gave up 72 points in the paint. And then I'd also maybe Nick Collison is injured, which is why he can't play and doesn't right, play. Right. Um, but I, I feel like sometimes you can be more valuable, um, having kind of a Nick Collison sort of offensive game than you do with an Ennis Cantor sort of offensive game. And it's not always the case, but if you look at like their plus minus numbers over the years, Nick Collison's actually been a better offensive player than Ennis Cantor has been, even though he puts up, you know, 10 less points a game and fewer rebounds. It, it's all about how he's able to help his teammates out. So he's, you know, he's passing the ball more. He's making the right play on offense. Yeah. Um, and then of course on the defensive end, he's drawing charges, doing the right thing, being in the right spots that, Ennis Cantor can't be. And so, you know, I think there's a real argument that maybe if you're the Thunder, you, you'd rather have uh, Collison out there on the floor than, than Cantor in certain situations. Definitely. And I was just kind of trying to, to maybe uh, gauge a little bit of what Royce was trying to say because I definitely, you know, Royce is a very smart guy and I don't think he was actually trying to say the Thunder don't care about what right, Ennis right, Cantor right. does defensively because, you have, you, of course, you have to care about that. He's atrocious defensively and that matters. But uh, I think what he was kind of trying to say was that it it as maybe as compared to the next guy down the list or as to his replacement that 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 value he's bringing is still more than that guy and that's why you still got to have him on the floor especially with them missing so many of their offensive stars agreed yeah no and that's that's really the biggest issue is Ennis Cantor is really their second uh offensive option right now and their third offensive option is who like Anthony Mm -hmm. Morrow essentially um and, and that's not a great place for them to be but Anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for the call. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking about the Jazz's upcoming schedule, uh, the basketball skills of us and other uh, Jazz media members, <laughs> and, of course, reading the remainder of your tweets on the show today. That's coming up next on Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association, this is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. I'm Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett over there on the other side. Uh, over there, way over there. I'm over here. Uh, 
Anyway, Alex Kennedy did an interview with Trey Burke today, and it's been tweeting out quotes throughout the day, uh, including a couple that he tweeted during the show that uh, had to do with our, our playoff discussion from Trey Burke. So uh, I just want to talk about, uh, I, I want to read these kind of out loud. First of all, he asked Trey Burke if he thinks Utah makes the playoffs next year. With no hesitation, Trey said, the West is brutal, but we definitely think we can. Uh, continuing on about his future, I think the biggest thing we're starting to understand how good we can be. We're playing at a high level, we're playing together, and more impl- importantly, we're playing high-level defense, which is allowing us to get great offense. We know we're a young team with a lot of talent, and we're looking forward to next year. I think this momentum that we are gaining at the end of the season will definitely lead into next year's success. We're having a lot more fun, guys are smiling and laughing, and we're enjoying this last part of the season. We know what the future holds and how good we can be. And by the way, I'd just like to note real quick that this is a player in, in Trey Burke who started all of last year, started most of this year, has now seen his minutes significantly reduced, and I, I think it's with, you know, I guess we don't know this for sure, but I think it's without question that I, I've heard that, that Quinn Snyder will attend, occasionally run an intense practice, and I almost guarantee you that Trey has been yelled at during this practice at various points. All the time. And the way he reacts is by being very professional and making positive statements about the team going forward. I'd just like to compare and contrast that with a gentleman who we were discussing earlier on the show. And how Ennis Cantor. I will say his name. He's how, like Voldemort. And I, how the I, former player <laughs> res- responded to the way he may, maybe got many of those same types of criticisms from not only Quinn Snyder but also Ty Corbin over the years. I'd just like to note that professionals respond to those things a different way. And that's all I'll go with right there. Is that, and we've said we've noted that before about Trey is that he is exquisitely professional. Yeah, no, no doubt. And you're exactly right to be comparing and contrasting those two situations because I think there are, they are pretty similar in terms of guy getting demoted due to some aspect of his play that isn't up to snuff, mm-hmm. um, having a younger guy come up be, beneath him and, and kind of show more promise. And, and Trey's dealt with it in exactly the right way, is so positive about the Jazz moving forward. And, and it's Cantor, I will say his name. Um, the former player. <laughs> I got your back, Gordon. And his canter is is not that. Yeah, definitely not that. All right. Speaking of basketball skills that maybe some people have inflated ideas of themselves as far as their own basketball skills go, it's not only NBA players that occasionally have those ideas about themselves, is it? No, Mr. Mr. Tony Jones from the Salt Lake Tribune um, <laughs> was was the subject of a lot of laughs yesterday. Joe Ingles was was harsh on, on Tony Jones' play. They had a uh, charity game for the, the Junior Jazz on, on this Tuesday Um with with him and a whole bunch of other jazz media playing in this game and, and so they showed some highlights of it and, and of course tony jones being being the basketball player that he is was was naturally featured and it was a little bit of a train wreck it was it, I, I mean first of all let me just state because i'm sure tony will hear this tony jones would destroy me on a basketball court would probably destroy both of us no oh i don't know about I, you i don't know about you but uh, i'm I not that tr- good but i think tony says that he is much better than he is uh, and i'm not thinking that he's like any kind of superstar but the guy did play at a college level briefly and that and that's way higher level of basketball than i've ever even considered playing uh, i think i could maybe try and defend him because i'm fast than I look, and, I'm, and I'm, I have good reflexes. I'm not. I'm actually when I play pickup basketball, I'm actually okay at defense. I'm, I'm pretty good right. at it. I like to think it's the other end of the court where I'm a, a total train wreck. So basically. really, Ennis Cantor is, or sorry, Tony Jones is Ennis Cantor because he he admits that he does not play defense. He likes to say that he's the Steve Nash, but really he's like I don't know. He's like Trey Burke or something. He's just jacking shots, and then on the defensive end, not playing a whole lot of defense. Okay. Um, 
And, and, although he doesn't have the nice professionalism that Trey Burke does. <laughs> no, that, that was pretty. And frankly, this stuff, because Jingles went out of his way to walk over to where Tony was and say, hey, man, that was terrible. <laughs> like, you were terrible. And Jack Cooley chimed in, too. Like, that was one of the funniest things I've seen in the locker room since I've been coming to the games. It was a good bit of entertainment. Uh, Tony Parks, I will say, had a great corner three-point shot. He's got a nice He's, stroke. He could, he could space the floor for your Utah Jazz. He shoots how it's supposed to shoot. Ball's coming off his, his index. <laughs> middle finger when he shoots it i like tony stroke good on you tony tony jones on the other hand cannot pass with both feet on the floor no uh, dan clayton our another salt city hoops writer made that point to, he was he was messaging that's how i saw the vine in the first place actually of tony and the vine shows tony making three passes none of which contained both of tony's legs on the ground at the same time all of he, he's he likes to do the whole like lift one leg up to try and get extra velocity on the pass type yeah thing. Uh, so i mean we had the media training camp earlier this season and uh i i I felt like me and Tony Jones are at about the same level of play. Okay. And then there are guys like Britton Johnson, who should not have been out on the floor. Like, that's (laughs) that's unfair. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's go <laughs> real, quick, real quick, sorry, Clint Peterson says, uh, Tony is Ennis, an Ennis Cantor on the court. Sleep well, Andy Larson, is what, uh, is what Clint says, which, which might be true. If this gets back to Tony, who knows what's going to oh, happen. Oh, it will, because, of course, Clint mentioned Tony. This will be great for us. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the Jazz's upcoming schedule this week. Uh, first of all, they take on the Sun Saturday in Phoenix. Uh, the Suns currently have four minutes, or sorry, four wins on, on the Jazz Um in the standings, and I almost think that it's kind of possible that the Jazz actually catch up to the Suns. Yeah, I think they've, I mean, they're playing Golden State tonight as we speak right now, actually, and if they lose that game, that, I mean, the door is pretty much shut on their playoff hopes anyway, but assuming they lose this game, it is going to be virtually completely shut, and this is a team that even while they've been in the race, have been kind of falling apart systematically. Yeah, they've lost their last four. Yeah, they they have not looked very good. Uh, It's kind of unfortunate to see, we all honestly hope that what happened to them this year doesn't happen to the Jazz next year, kind of being a feel-good story the year right. before, but then having a bit of a drop-off. Um, so I, I honestly think there's a, a decent chance the Jazz win that game, especially if Phoenix has lost kind of all their motivation at that point. See, the Suns are kind of the example when I think of the Jazz for next year, and, and just kind of the limits of optimism, I guess, with, okay. with that, where I think you know the Suns thought they would be a lot better than they were this season and because of that because of how well they played last season it's just really hard to get those next 10 wins um in some sense the jazz got the low-hanging fruit this year with the coach improvement and you know not giving richard jefferson minutes and that sort of thing uh they'll have to take a, another talent leap i think in order to make it but the, see like the it. difference with the jazz is i think that's just a little more likely because first of all they've got a guy like alec burks coming back phoenix had nobody of that ilk who was coming back to their roster they phoenix had nowhere near the kind of cap space the jazz have this upcoming summer to potentially make a move grab somebody no but will the jazz sign someone better than isaiah thomas possibly i don't think so i mean it's not likely but it's it's certainly possible <laughs> I'm a hater. Nah, maybe. No, I, I'm but not. Plus, I'm just the, realistic. Plus, Isaiah Thomas is very good, but he was the third player at the same position who they signed, and I think that was an experiment that definitely didn't work right. out. Like, you hope the Jazz aren't just going to go out and sign another, like, superstar center who's going to steal minutes from Rudy and Derek, which is almost the equivalent of what Phoenix did last yeah. offseason. No, that's so. fair. Uh, yeah, I, I think they will avoid those sorts of moves. Yeah. Anyway, we can't help ourselves but to talk about whether or not the Jazz will play, yeah, make true. the playoffs next year. Sacramento, uh, I, I think that's a win for the Jazz, even at Sacramento. Actually, the next two games are at Sacramento and then home against Sacramento mm-hmm. the, the following Wednesday. I think I would assume they win both those games generally. Honestly, we could see a 3-0 and stretch here. It's either going to be 2-1 and or 3-0, and I think. 
is what you'd have to assume for this up. And those are the only three games before we're back here next week. Right. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's a two and one or three and zero oh stretch. You know, you could see the Jazz win six in a row again, as they did earlier this uh, earlier in March. And, you know, uh, put together the end of the season in the way that these guys have really been working for. And, you know, we know that the end of a season has very frequently had a a large effect on how teams perform the following year, the back half of one year. So I think it's really good. Agreed. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening to us. That's our show. Uh, As always, you can check out our work on SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Jazz. You can also listen to the rest of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and on ESPN700Sports.com. That's been the show. Salt City Hoops, ESPN 700.